Tis the buying season in honor of Wonka in limited release this weekend. And he is a character who dreams of manufacturing chocolate. What type of retail store would you open? Uh, I'm Katie Rich. and I really find it hard to dream bigger than a chocolate store. That sounds great. But here's my innovation. I'm going to have instead of a chocolate uh, river, it's going to be a chocolate mountain and you scale it and you chisel out chunks of chocolate like like rock salt. And that's uh, that's what you get to do in my chocolate store. Ooh. I'm at Patches, and I would just sell theremins, those beautiful electronic instruments. <laughs> How much does it cost to theremins. make a theremin? Like, is the markup really high? It seems like it would be. I don't think it costs a lot to get, like, the electronics to build a shitty one. I think you probably ah. spend more in cabinetry than you do in wiring. But I'm not going to reveal the company secret, so just come <laughs> in, and we'll fix you up. I like gigantic chocolate shops. You don't tell the secret of the Thurman factory. As <laughs> uh, we Dave the Seven, and I always thought maybe books or comics or zines, but now I'm starting to think a boutique shop that sells physical media that has entire runs of podcasts on it. Mm. I'm David Ehrlich. Uh Wonka definitely not opening in limited release this weekend, Dave. They, uh, they're going wide with it. Uh, okay, good. I was going to wonder about that. And, uh, <laughs> Um, they got a lot of chocolate to sell. They could have gone and, bigger. Uh, if I, what's the question? If I, if I had a store in a movie, what would I sell? Yeah, open a store. Uh, I'm going to sell busy, yeah. Dave, Dave Gonzalez. I'm just going to, he's, he's wow. got so many ideas. He's Human got so many, so much David energy. Dancer. I'm just going to be his manager, essentially. That's my, you know, come oh, in. Yeah. Rent a Dave, little Dave Gonzalez in your life. I mean, yeah. look. People would, people would pay good money. That's just a consulting service, I think, yeah. that you're running. Um, or maybe you're an agent, I think, is what, is what you're proposing. Mm, mm, maybe. That, that sounds a lot less pleasant, to be honest. It does not sound like it, it suits <laughs> my uh, abilities, whatever they may be. I think you got to think through this business plan a little mm, bit more. Mm. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's, it's awesome. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 455. It is the week of Wednesday, December 13th. Isn't that Taylor Swift's birthday? Yeah. I think it is. Wow. What's wrong with you? Happy Good. birthday to us all. What a, what a thing to know. Happy birthday. Uh, I, don't, I don't know really. I, I like Taylor Swift fine. I'm surprised that I know that off the top of my head. Uh, it's also the day that in 1975, Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live used a broadcast delay for the first time. Did you know who was hosting? It was Richard Pryor. Uh, did they bleep him? have him telling black jokes. Mm. I think it was Richard Parker, the tiger from Life of Pi. <laughs> yeah. That guy is more like a sailor. That is how that works. Uh, I assume they have like a default five second delay now. Like, what do you do otherwise? Um, someone from SNL, write in and let us know. Uh, this week, we don't have to punish anybody. Although there's still no reviews in the iTunes store. And the, you know, I still call it iTunes. Everyone likes it when I do that. <laughs> um, I don't, yeah, we still want those, but we're very happy to have emails instead, which is what I hear that we have. We do. Uh, we have two emails. The first one, uh, the subject is supporting the show. Hi, Fitware gang. I have been a listener to your show for many years and appreciate each episode. I have recently become more mindful of the importance of paying for the things I value and want oh. to suggest a way that I and others can oh. support your show. Okay. Well, you can cut us a check. I... Okay. Well, hang on. Hang on. Let them finish. 
Because each of the hosts works at a different outlet, I often wish I had a way to keep track of what you were working on and where I could find your work. I used to accomplish this through Twitter, but it isn't terribly viable at the moment. Ugh. And I think social networks might be bad. Mm -hmm. If you had a Patreon for $5 a month, I would gladly subscribe for no real additional benefit besides making the podcast mm. more sustainable for you. And I think other fans would too. But if you wanted to scrape together something easy, I would very much appreciate a weekly or even monthly roundup of pieces you've published. You could throw some other stuff in there as well, like Dave could write a track listing for the segment break music, but that's extra work and the idea would be to support you for the great stuff you're already doing. I hope you keep putting out the show for a long time to come and I'll continue to look forward to each week's episode. Thanks, Brian. Katie, are your eyes I okay? Mean, They're popping with dollar signs <laughs> right now. Is that natural? Yeah, my Scrooge McDuck uh, bloodline is coming out. Uh, I don't know if you know <laughs> that I'm a distant relation. Um, what an incredibly kind thing to just be like hi i like you so much i want to give you money for no extra benefit whatsoever um i have no idea how many other people feel that way but uh thank you <laughs> hopefully it's in the thousands and thousands <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's gotta be at yeah, least then it, four of them which means that we can so all walk away with five dollars a month <laughs> yeah which it I becomes would so successful that we uh, yeah, stop gonna... having other jobs so there is no link roundup of other stuff that we're doing the link roundup is just this podcast over and over again mm. uh I think we could probably figure that Wait. out. Um, yeah. If you also want to just send us, should we just start posting our Venmo account information? <laughs> just, having, yeah, like no like no further work on our end. Uh, I think we could do, we could do uh, a Patreon pitch how to where you get access to <laughs> our podcast. monthly call-in show that I think would be fun to do. David's establishing a uh, monetization problem, program right here live on the show. The problem <laughs> yeah. is we do it. We take people behind the curtain. Just call me the Wizard of fucking, That's true. The fucking That's Fighting true. in this the War, man. People, but, uh, the, people coming back. the problem with that idea, though, is that it would be our same four Patreon subscribers <laughs> calling into our show every month. And you know what? That's fine. I mean, be happy to talk to them. But and it's just an, an episode a month where it's eight people on the podcast instead of four. <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, more or less. Yeah. It'd basically be uh, a Twitter space. You can do like a Marvel uh, Snap consultation, David. Ooh, <laughs> just that way. We, help, we help you with your decks. Yeah. Well, now they have a feature People that does that, that for How you. How to gamble. Um, uh, this next email subject is, I hope I got the right email address. Maybe you did. Let's read sure. the email. <laughs> Hi, I'm emailing to prevent you from talking about mobile games to talk about more mobile games. You might have cross, come across Cine 2 Nerdle. It's kind of like the connections game that the New York Times has, but now they've recently added a battle mode where you could compete against other players. It's sort of like the Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon or the Cinephile card game. You are given a set movie at the start of every game. It changes every day. Yesterday it was Black Swan. You must name another movie that connects to the previous one, whether it be by actor, director, writer, or cinematographer within 20 seconds. You could only use a person's name three times and the other player has the option to block certain names from being used. I've been finding it very addictive, especially Whoa. if you find a title that stumps other players. I was connecting Black Swan to Beaches through Barbara Hershey, and people had to use their lifelines. Skip, add 15 seconds, view, cast, crew. I found it a little surprising that it stumps so many people, although it never got old. Do people not know they're my hero and that they're the wind beneath my wings? I am Gen Z, so I understand that Barbara Hershey isn't a name that you, you hear that often. But it's one of the first Bette Midler films you'd think of. Maybe the seventh Gary Marshall one since he made dozens of movies based on various holidays. I guess Gary Marshall is as popular as I thought. Maybe they all prefer Penny. I sound like an old lady. To prove I'm Gen Z, my other tactic was to divert the path into 2000s, 2010s, 
Disney Channel original movies. If the other person played Ocean's Eleven, I would play Kim Possible A Stitch in Time because Elliot Gould vo voiced Ron's dad in it. I did get my comeuppance when me and another player uh, played David Lean films back and forth. I got stuff on, stuck on Brief Encounter, and since you could only use a name three times as a connection, I couldn't name another David Lean film, so I tried to play The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, the only other Celia Johnson movie I know off the top of my head. It wouldn't come up as an option when I typed it in. I ran out of time. It's so long of a title, it took an extra bit to type. I'm still annoyed about this, and now <laughs> I think I should have just done something with Noel Coward. He was in the Italian job. I guess that's what I deserve for playing dirty with the beaches pick. Okay, bye, M. This is wow. what Gen Z is like. I thought Gen Z was really into Barbara Hershey. Doesn't she stream Honkai Star Rail on Twitch all the time? <laughs> I am willing to bet that this is the first time in human history Barbara Hershey and Honkai Star Rail have been mentioned in the same sentence. Uh, <laughs> it's I, history I would put money here. on that. Um, I should say, the, the game that uh, this listener is describing sounds similar to the party game that Oscilloscope made uh, that uh, called Celluloid that I have been roped into now for the second time uh, hosting live games of in Brooklyn. Uh, wow, really? Doing, yeah, I'm doing it. We did, one, we did one in November, I want to say. It was actually like super, super fun. Uh, I was sort of the host slash moderator slash like arbitrary point order. I got to do a lot of yelling. Uh, it was fun. Uh, we're doing another one this Thursday night, December 14th at... Uh, at Syndicated in Brooklyn at 7 p.m. You can go on the website, buy tickets. It was a lot of fun. It's like a more creative version of movie trivia. You don't necessarily have to have a deep reservoir of knowledge so much as a, uh, a willingness to, I don't know, show up with your friends and think out loud. It sounds but, like the, uh, the, the videology trivia golden era coming back. Uh, not really, but it's... it's, <laughs> it's this is like when not, Ken Jennings became that. the host of Jeopardy um, after... Commanding yeah. Anyway, uh, you can leave us a review in the Apple Podcast app. Uh, if you give us five stars, we'll read it. We'll actually, read it. No, if you we don't give us five it. stars, but anyway. clearly, come on, yeah, we have yeah, some I'm, I, I'm just trying. I'm just trying. Um, and you can also email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. If you don't do one of those things by next week, we will talk about dumb mobile games uh, for a few minutes. But uh, you've been spared. Let's move on with the show. To start off the podcast tonight, gah! There's a new Miyazaki film that I haven't seen, and I'm so mad. <laughs> ah, torture. This is the right. world that we live in. Can I? Here, I'm gonna, I'm you can't to just immediately see your face. It'll be like it'll be like you've seen it once you hear my impression of Robert Pattinson's hair and voice. It's okay, like, just perfect. close your eyes and imagine hearing this in IMAX. It'll take you right there. I'm Aaron. <laughs> oh no! Honestly, patches when you started off going. I, I, was, I was doing a heron impression. Accidentally doing heron. Okay, that's <laughs> good to know. That does not tell me anything about what this movie is. Why Miyazaki came out of retirement to come make it? Why 
the, the it's been such a secret coming out both in Japan and here in the U.S. What what is the deal with this? Is this the final film? Even is this the one to go out on? Is this the is this the masterpiece to trump all masterpieces of the man who made Spirited Away and The Wind Rises and Princess Mononoke? This is this is my guy. Why is this his last movie? Is this a swan song or is this a should I say heron song? Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's our show. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. We <laughs> and I fall in love with those three movies you mentioned. Um, is yeah. it is it just is it just David and I that have gotten I, to see the boy? I, I saw it in Toronto, so it's been it's been I've seen many uh, movies okay. between now. and He then, has only yes. seen the sub, not the dub. I assume. Wow, what a loser! Yes, I have not oh. seen the dub. It was not out at the time. I have also not seen Toronto. the dub. It sounds I mean, like David's would... the dub, the dub king. No, I mean uh, it, it is uh, one of the the fun details from the piece that I wrote about the making of the dub, which you can read on IndieWire is that Katie's audience uh, at TIFF was actually very instructive to the overall tenor of the dub because it was because of the reaction to some of the the jokes in uh, the subtitled version during the premiere, which were a lot stronger than Studio Ghibli was expecting because Japanese audiences hadn't been reacting that effusively to the humor in the movie. Uh, they essentially gave G-Kids the green light to make the dub funnier. And uh, wow, you, can, you can definitely feel that um, when you watch it. Uh, well, I mean, we'll talk about the dub. The, the dub, you know, I'm a subs over dub guy most of the time, particularly when it comes to movies that are set at least partially in Japan uh, or anime that are set partially in Japan, as this one is. Um, but the dub is phenomenal uh, and uh, in no way replaces the experience of seeing the sub. It is a beautiful thing when we can have access to both and one day we'll be able to flip between them with the push of a button. So you really can't go wrong either way. But it's interesting that they went funnier with the the sub because I feel like a, a lot of the humor in the movie is when you're like I don't understand what's happening I don't know if this is supposed to be funny like there's a there's <laughs> you know there there's violence and there's uncertainty and that's definitely part of the text of the movie so a version of the movie in which it's just like oh no this is all very silly this <laughs> heron is ridiculous from the very start while also being menacing is an interesting no, I mean I don't want to overstate it's it's not okay. like uh, they made it into fucking like the emperor's new groove. I'm just saying that there are, there are, that. are moments here and there, uh, moments that are intended to be funny in the Japanese dub. And it is a dub and the Japanese version is also a dub. Um, they they animate it you know, completely silently and then dub it over. They don't draw it to match the voice performances. Um, it, uh, they just they just sort of lean into the humor that is already there. Uh, sure. at times and it in no way imbalances the the movie it is still a uh, emotionally harrowing experience i would say well can you movies. we haven't talked yeah. about what this movie actually is about and it's been very it's... even in trailers has been very cryptic i think we should say if you want to go into this in a pure way, I feel like Miyazaki has urged people, and, and Studio Ghibli has urged people to just the, the, walk into this movie. Yeah, and, but and the not, Venn diagram know of people anything. who who are uh, concerned about the purity of their experience, the new Miyazaki movie, um, have yet to see it, even though it is the number one and probably the number one movie in the United States and are listening to our podcast segment about it, it is no one. So I think that that's we, we don't really have <laughs> I'm, to. I'm just um, uh, in case. But yeah, talk talk about what this movie actually is and maybe well, why you think Miyazaki wanted a little, to A little it. bit of backstory, as Patches was alluding to, uh, nobody has, in, in probably any field, has retired more frequently than Hayao Miyazaki. 
Um, most recently <laughs> and most convincingly with The Wind Rises, which came out in 2013. And not only was it this most convincing retirement because uh, he was getting up there in age, but also because it felt very much like a swan song. It was a, I mean, it was a biopic, a heavily fictionalized biopic, but it was also transparently a sort of tortured self-portrait uh, of the artist uh, examining the pain of artistic creation, the cost of making beautiful things in a cursed world, all the things that have been present in Miyazaki's movies and that he has lived with, you know, absence from his family, um, etc. And uh, it, it really felt, you know, particularly in the beautiful way that movie ends, and I still think that is really his towering masterpiece um, uh, and his magnum opus, and f- couldn't couldn't imagine a more appropriate way of saying goodbye and a more fitting farewell. Uh, it, it really felt like he was sort of logging off for the last time. Um, and I, in my foolishness, uh, took him at his word. But there is a reading of The Wind Rises, which I think has become even more apparent to me now, which is uh, not that he was hanging it up, although I think he, he really meant to at the time, but also he will never be able to stop. Um, he, he, I mean, like, it's part of, it's sort of baked into the, the text of The Wind Rises, this idea of a creation as the air in his lungs as his only means of expression and interacting with the world outside of his head um, and sort of finding a measure of peace and and beauty in it. And I think that that may not, I think probably will not translate into another feature after the boy and the heron. But I do think that he is going to continue sort of going to the office and chain smoking uh, in his little hut um, and doodling um, and telling people that their AI animation is the sin against God um because i think this is this is really uh all what how, how he knows to function in the world um but wait yes can we talk okay i was gonna just throw it a day but you finished what you were gonna say i was gonna say, a few years after that he did uh, and the timeline has been made very clear uh the press notes for the film came with a letter written by miyazaki when they began production of the movie sort of talking about how stupid it is for him to make another film, how embarrassed he is, uh, you know, how any how, how absurd it is that anyone should trust um, somebody in his position, and using his words, sort of like a doddering old man, uh, to make great art at this point, um, and just really necking himself in the most extreme way before he embarks on uh, one of the most tasking projects of his entire professional life um and there were rumors for years that it was based uh, because of its title which was released in japan under the title how do you know how do you live rather not how do you know <laughs> very different movie yeah um, it was a, it's a sequel <laughs> to the it's just a remake of the james l brooks movie sorry. listen james l brooks we also thought was retired and he's back in the saddle too so look and he asks there. how do you live also it's sure a big part, of the, part of his work um, as well but there is a novel that, was, that made an impression on miyazaki when he was a child called how do you live it is a plot point in uh the movie that was at least temporarily of the same name or locally of the same name. Um, and for years, people thought it was an adaptation. Uh, it turns out very much not to be, even though the book, as I said, <laughs> features in the movie. Um, there may be some thematic uh, overlap, but this is very much an original story and, uh, and a surprisingly abstract one at that. Um, not that Miyazaki has ever been the most linear of, of filmmakers and thinkers, but um, this one is particularly dreamlike in its second half. The basic tenets of the story, which uh, begins in 1943 in a Tokyo hospital fire in which uh, Mahito Maki, who's the main character, is a 12-year-old boy. His mother dies um, in the fire. Uh, and 
when the story resumes proper, he his father is uh, moving him outside of Tokyo to the suburbs because he is marrying his late wife's sister. He is marrying Mahito's aunt, uh, who is pregnant with Mahito's future half-sibling. Um, and our, our young lad is understandably a little bit miffed and confused about this and is uh, being very resentful towards his new his aunt slash stepmom um, and acting he's being violent towards himself and he's being terrorized by a heron on the grounds of this property who is taunting him with messages that his mother is actually still alive and if he follows him into the creepy tower on the outskirts of the property perhaps Mahito will be able to see her again see her again and eventually Mahito does and finds himself uh, transported into a liminal alternate dimension sort of between life and death uh and that is where i think we can leave our plot synopsis yeah i think that's fair i was gonna throw it to dave just to see if he can kind of put his finger on better than i was explaining like why it is interesting that there would be a funnier version of this movie even if it was being overstated like i think the tone of this movie is something that's really hard for me to describe but i think is essential to the appeal of it for people um and i wonder if uh, Dave, to get you in this conversation, you feel like I'm a better explanation of it. Um, I don't know. I got to see it in uh, last Saturday at a screening that started at like 1130. Oh, boy. It was one of the, you were in a liminal the... state of between uh, between life and death at 1130 Sorry. p.m. 1130 a.m. Ah, never mind. That's here's a reasonable the, time of day. Here's the trick that I pulled. Uh, I wanted to see the subtitled version, but a lot of them were later in the day. So I went to the children-friendly subtitle version, mm. banking on the fact that there wouldn't actually be a lot of children in attendance, which did work because who wants to read a movie to your children? Yeah. Uh, especially this one. Um, uh, yeah, so there were moments that I was uh, chuckling along with my audience, but it's sort of, we had to give ourselves permission to do that, uh, because at least for the first hour or so of the movie, um, the movie is, first of all, impeccably sound design, uh, but also very um, visually based on how you should be taking things in. There isn't a whole bunch of dialogue. And uh, at least until that self-injury part, um, there isn't uh, a ton of incident that you wouldn't expect Mahito. out of uh, <laughs> the beginning of the story. Yes, that does happen a A bunch lot. of frogs uh, climb on his face at one point. Well, there's well, like the old ladies you, like chattering around and they're up to stuff. I, I love but... the grandmothers. I love a movie that... Uh, you know, recognizes the importance of tobacco to old old women. And uh, <laughs> this movie definitely does that. Uh, it's when the eyes started to pop out of the hair and that we sort of, as a collective audience, my audience sort of to uh, realize what we were in for, that it was a very purposefully sort of lowering us into what would become a very fantastical story. The only uh, exception was very early on he thinks maybe he could save his mother in the fire and there's a fantastically animated fire sequence uh, that is definitely one of the best drawn sequences I've seen this year um, I guess I haven't seen a lot of drawn sequences as much as I've seen CG animated sequences with stuff drawn over them but sure. even so this one uh, does a pretty good job of by in that moment we're in Mojito's head and it isn't until much later that you realize you've uh, slowly transitioned 
back into Mojito's head. And then once you do, and once you get the idea that your protagonist is not as scared as you are about falling from heights or getting sucked into jello floors, uh, there's a lot of times in this movie where I'm like, wait, wait, is he okay? But he's just the hero. He's fine. Um, uh, but <laughs> That's how so many when, more stories should work. It's like, oh, like, yeah. like playing Link and Zelda. Like, yeah, he's fine. Figure it out. I, I think the moment clicked for me eventually where it was uh, my emotions trying to puzzle out the film became Mojito's emotion trying to deal uh, with uh, every, all the various real life issues that he's dealing with that have sort of been Alice in Wonderlanded into the second half of the movie. But not Alice in Wonderhand, Wonderland in like Alice a Wizard of Oz thing. Alice in Wonderland would Born be version, of a completely different type of movie. Um, <laughs> uh, but like in Wizard of Oz, you know, it's like, and you were there and you were there. There's a certain degree of that, but that's not, it's not necessarily the direct one-to-one parallel in The Boy and the Heron, which makes it uh, both, I think, much more puzzling to sit through, but also much more rich to have experienced once and maybe experience uh, again. Uh, I was honestly visually just sucked into this movie for the second half uh, in a way that when it ended, I was like, oh, I feel like I should have been paying more attention to the plot, mm. which I think mm. I think was me being wrong, ultimately. Well, because I, absorb, I absorbed the parts that m- made me feel okay with it once I spent some time thinking about it. And I think while it was just happening, there was a lot of visuals going on and I wasn't... Uh, Saying you know this means this and these blocks mean these things. Uh, I I wasn't I wasn't doing that until after the movie. Ended. I, I don't think that uh, it is wise to try and find a one to one interpretation or meaning uh, to everything that's happening in this movie. In the same way, not not to o- use you know the most overused adjective in film commentary and call it Lynchian, but there is a certain <laughs> sort of like free associative quality to the second half of the movie. Um, I it's also a grower for sure. Um, I think especially, you know, relative to the rest of Miyazaki's movies, this is one that really, I think, plants the seed and, and flowers uh, within you over the, you know, my anecdotally, that was my experience with it. But um, yeah, I mean, the uh, what was I going to say? The 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 the, the, the when he oh, oh the yeah, being sort of just carried along by how beautiful it looks. I mean, Studio Ghibli movies have have always been you know, so detailed and, and meticulously drawn um, and the artistry is so overpowering that it can really just be the only thing you focus on the first or even the 10th time through. But something happened and I wish I knew more about the, the technical reasons for this. Uh, I know that Ponyo, they really made an effort to not use any sort of digital assistance and emphasize the hand-drawn animation and the animation in that movie is just staggering. But I feel like starting with Howl's Moving Castle in particular, even more so than Spirited Away, the there was like an oily quality to their animation. Um, and the, the richness and the, the texture of it just became even more beautiful than it had been in the past. And The Wind Rises, I mean, mm. watching The Wind Rises in the same year that Frozen came out, it's just like, I truly, my mind, I think, was broken by that and i've wow. yet to recover revisiting by the dis- revisiting yeah. the frozen wars of i know i here. know like the just the disparity <laughs> in the uh the visual beauty between those two films um they understand they work on different levels and have different agendas but uh it's a striking comparison novel and nonetheless 
And now watching The Boy and the Heron, I mean, it's just like we are. I don't know if we were ever going to see movies this beautifully drawn again. Um, it feels like, you know, like a like a, like a, a, an old recipe where the only people who know know how what it is or how to make whatever dishes for are leaving us and we're just wait is studio ghibli not invested as a business into maintaining this though i mean studio ghibli is uh is miyazaki at this point they're finding they've had financial ups and downs over uh over the years Uh, and there was a while where they the lights were off and they were not actively in production on anything uh studio panic who was just sort of developed from studio ghibli uh, not rejects, but but alumni uh, was briefly in existence. I don't know if they still are. They, they made at least did one movie. Marion the Witch Flower and those shorts collection. Yeah, well, Earwig and the Witch was Earwig and the Witch. No, not Earwig and the Witch. That was Ghibli. I was thought. Goro Miyazaki? It yeah. was Ghibli. No, there's another. Um, there's another witch of. thing that the Potic did. Yeah, it's uh, good. yeah, there was. I know the movie. You're but does Studio about. Ghibli benefit from? The Ghibli Park, like if they bounce back because yeah, they I mean, finally they, have a Disney I, I'm kind sure, of you know, Yeah, I'm sure that they have the resources to continue to some degree. I mean, this movie, uh, The Boy in the Heron, is the most expensive movie ever produced in the country of Japan. It is also a wow. massive hit. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's, I think, part of the reason why it's unlikely we'll ever get animated films as beautiful again, not only because of the artistry involved, but also because of the finances um, that were funneled towards it because they this is you know the last time i can imagine where a filmmaker's name without any other promotional materials bar a poster of like a sketch of a heron that looks nothing like the character appears in the film uh would be enough (laughs) to turn a movie into a massive hit because that was all the promotional campaign that you had had in japan um the idea of miyazaki's new and likely final film was enough to put a lot of butts in seats um and they're not going to be nobody's going to be in that position again uh yeah i mean so there but i think that sort of that lament that sort of elegiac quality uh is baked into to the material of this movie um it is part of how this movie operates uh there it, it could not be more explicit and i know i've fallen into this trap before and i'll be very happy if i'm falling into it again uh but it, it could not be more explicit that this is miyazaki saying goodbye um i think uh you know he's toshio suzuki his producer um has spoken now at length about uh, how the, which characters are meant to line up to uh, Hayao Miyazaki, Isao Takahata, and Toshio Suzuki, the three co-founders of Studio Ghibli, um, you know, in this sort of portrait of friendship. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's very much, again, there's an element of self-portraiture in there. Uh, it, it's really about what, you know, ceding control of his kingdom of dreams and madness to a generation after... He's gone. Uh, a generation Can that I? is strong. Let me just finish this one thought. Is strongly yeah. sort of vibing on uh, the the feeling that has been coursing through so many of his movies, which is like, why do we do anything when everything seems like it's crumbling before our eyes? Uh, an idea sort of made literal by the last 20 minutes of this movie. Uh, I'm curious about this as a portrait of friendship. I, I saw this movie in September. It's like a little bit fuzzier for me in my brain than I would like it to be. I feel... Uh, like I wasn't smart enough to get the surrealism of the second half, which we can maybe talk about more. But as a portrait of friendship is not a way I would have ever interpreted this movie. And I don't honestly would not have been the not have been and wasn't the angle at which I came at it either. But listening to Suzuki talk about it on the press tour, um, you know, he is he casts himself as the heron as sort of the trickster 
to uh, Mahito, who is a stand-in for a young Miyazaki, and uh, the the granduncle whose tower they go into. You know, I interpret it to be a version of Miyazaki. I think there probably is a kernel of truth in that. By in Suzuki's reading, he's a stand-in for Takahata. Um, I think the the as the relationship to Mahito and the Heron develops, and they go from being sort of like the the Heron goes from being trollish to there's like a, a, a and there's like a mutual adversar- adversarial quality, and then a reluctant sort of trust and companionship emerges. Uh, that's spiky but helpful and balancing. Um, I think that is where that element takes root. It is not what mm-hmm. I emotionally connected to, but I think it is a case where things that were top of mind for the creator, the ultimate creator of the movie, um, may not have been the things that are going to emotionally resonate with a wider audience. So I'm going to make a movie about this podcast and about our relationship. That's going to be like a really, really surrealist like road trip fantasy and people are going to spend years figuring out who's yeah, but who. Then when we movie. get to the end and I'm just like, can I make a point? And the grand aunt goes, ah, and they'll, they'll know. <laughs> then they'll know. <laughs> Um, Boy of the Heron. It's in oh, the theaters. I, I thought I, we were just I like. I think so. We were, this was just the intro to our Boy in the Heron discussion. Oh my I was going to go on for the next I mean, several hours. Uh, I might be uh, on the wrong podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I wish I had like more that I wanted to dive into on this. Like, I, I like the idea of it growing. I have thought about this movie since I have seen it, but like, it is confusing and strange and dream logic and i don't think i've ever like grasped all that well onto dream logic in movies in general um mm. and i think that prevented the emotional part of it from me mm. because i was you know being very I, really literal minded trying to figure out what's going on I, and i guess mm. i'm curious why like i i mean Izaki movie is a big deal i understand that what is it that's making this movie such a big hit what are people connecting to oh, well, that not asking, even necessarily what i didn't you're see you're throwing a lot of chum in the water um, I guess so. But like, to your first point, are other people I just want to say confused? quickly that like, I do think this movie is definitely catnip for people who are Studio Ghibli diehards. There are there is a lot of connective tissue to Miyazaki's previous work. I don't think that is at all um, a barrier of entry to people who are coming into this without that that history with them. Uh, I do think by the end of this movie, I don't want to make it sound too daunting for people who are on the fence about whether or not to go see it. I, I I did find um, to the best of my ability to separate my love for Miyazaki's movies with my sort of experience as a viewer of this one that uh, it, it does sort of cohere into very clear emotional beats towards the end that I found immensely moving. Uh, Mahito's relationship with a character named Lady Himi in particular, uh, and his this dialogue that he has with the grand uncle character towards the end. I mean, I think are as moving as anything that Miyazaki has ever drawn. Um, particularly because of how directly they're confronting the question of that was asked by the title of the book that inspired the film. You know, how do you live? Um, you know, how and I think that's a question that is is not meant to be taken literally so much as, you know, h- how do you find the, the strength and reason to um, look for beauty and continue on and, and sort of build your own tower, uh, as someone would say in the film? Uh, in a world as rotten and fucked up as the one that we live in. And it's rare to have a filmmaker sort of address that question so directly. To your point, to your question rather, as to why it's such a hit, a lot of it has to do, uh, in the States anyway, with simply the muscle that G-Kids has put behind it. I mean, this movie has had such a long 
uh, you know, so, 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 so much headwind over the last several years of anticipation. Uh, anime has made huge inroads with the theatrical crowds in the United States. I mean, there have been a number of anime films that have broken through in recent years, all of them connected to franchises. This one stands out for being an original film, even though Studio Ghibli is obviously such a brand. Um, they put it on thousands of screens, uh, including IMAX screens. And it was the opening night film at the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, reviews, as they often are for Studio Ghibli movies, were uh, ecstatic. Um, I, I think Miyazaki is, is you know, you look at the box office for some of his previous movies and it might seem like he is treated as an art house director in the United States. And, you know, he certainly can't compete with the minions of the world. I mean, I, I mean that artistically, uh, but also <laughs> the commercially. Mi- the minions uh, of Miyazaki out there fighting the good fight. <laughs> yeah, I meant the minions of Illumination Entertainment, but sure. Uh, but the um, the reality is that he is as beloved internationally, worldwide, you know, universally as filmmakers get. We've had another 10 years of children being exposed to My Neighbor Totoro and Ponyo and growing up on those films. Uh, I think there, it's clear that there's a real appetite for his work. And uh, I think people understand that we're only going to get so many more of these, potentially zero more of these. Um, and uh, Joe Hisaishi Joe needs to win the Oscar. Katie, if he doesn't, yeah. I'm blaming you personally. I mean, that's a segue into talking about Golden Globes later, but we don't do segues. So, Dave, do you have any final thoughts? Oh, boy, the heron. It's in theaters. Check it out. If that sounds interesting. I think. Now you'll be more informed, and uh, the more you know about this movie, I think, the more it opens up, uh, which isn't to say it isn't beautiful, beautiful knowing nothing. Uh, number one movie in America. I really thought David was wrong, but it really was. I had no mm-hmm. idea. Beat oh, Godzilla yeah. minus one. I mean, Drax. Katie, two of the top five movies in the United States box office this weekend were Japanese. <laughs> Incredible. I mean, it's a strange time at the box office. I think we know that, <laughs> but also uh, deserved a boy in there. Well, now I get to talk about a thing I understand very well, which is the Golden Globes. Which Do is you not understand them? They're absolutely I mean, out of control. Uh, no, they're less out of control than they used to be. So the organization that gives out the Golden Globes used to be called the Hollywood Foreign Press. Uh, they got in mired in, uh, mired in scandal in 2021 when a um, uh, Los Angeles Times report revealed they had no black members. Not great for a a voting body that's like we're the international press we're representing the whole world voting on these awards uh so they made a huge (laughs) membership overhaul they now have over 300 members the name of the organization has changed they're owned by dick clark productions uh owned by the same parent company as david's employer so david you're like on you have to disclose uh, you are a golden globes voter and you are the golden globes now i think is how that uh, i am not a golden globes voter Uh, i am Uh, a golden globe they hand me to you if you win are you um, Mr. Golden Globe, like uh, when yes. like celebrity, like Nepo Babies used to do that? Yeah, <laughs> but they're insisting that I do it shirtless this year, which is really uncomfortable. Yeah. Ratings are going to soar. Um, so, I mean, I would argue the Golden Globes are like now aiming very uh, closely for respectability. Um, and you can kind of see that in the Who's nominations them, this then? year. Uh, it's a whole, there's a, actually, you can see it all on the website. It's a bunch of international journalists. It's like a couple of people 
whose names I recognize, and then a lot of people who didn't who because read they're based gold derby and, and then just plug in their votes and. I mean, I think that is one way to look at it. Like, there are certainly, you know, the nominations that came out this year, are like, you know, skewed toward the mean in a lot of ways, um, where you get, you know, a big performance for Barbie and Oppenheimer and Poor Things and Holdovers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you I'm know, just the glad Wish have, made the cut <clears throat> on animated feature. Film. Wish made the cut for animated yeah, feature, which is. I can't believe uh, Wish made the fucking cut. Quite, we wished it into existence. Quite a choice. We're, here we are talking about Wish again. We thought we were, <laughs> we were talking yeah, about it. a great film. Um, but because of the musical and comedy categories, you get things at the Golden Globes you're not going to get other places. And I think there were some good things in there. Our boy Timmy Chalamet of Wonka, uh, the movie that we also can't stop talking about, gets that Best Actor in a Comedy nomination. Deserves. It's, it's crazy. actually Best in a Musical. In I musical mean, or comedy. So he's uh, he's the only musical representation, but he's up against Joaquin Phoenix and Bo is Afraid and Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction. How do you put those three <laughs> performances against each other? No telling. Comedy. Um, then you get like Jennifer Lawrence and No Hard Feelings, which is like a great Golden Globes nominations. Like uh, comedic performances so rarely get nominated at the Oscars. They have a trouble at like Critics' Choice Awards and stuff like that. Put it right in there. And then like Fallen Leaves getting a Best Actress in the comedy nomination. That's like a Finnish movie I still haven't seen. And it's a huge platform for it. I think there's enough of those surprises in there to it's not nice feel like to these see are too boring. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, John Wick 4, <laughs> Mission Impossible. Okay. Dead Reckoning Part 1, Super Mario Brothers movie, and Taylor Swift Eras Tour all get nominations in, wait, what's this? <laughs> Cinematic and box office achievement in motion pictures? Uh, the what most, is this uh, category? The most unhinged part is certainly that is a new category. And then there's one on the television side called uh, Best Stand, hang on, Best Performance in Stand-Up Comedy on Television, um, which I, th- I don't think I made up this theory. The idea is that um, when they were looking for a new broadcast partner, they basically introduced that category to try to get Netflix to buy them. Um, which they didn't. <laughs> so now they'll be airing on CBS. Um, no, those categories Home are bananas. For great comedy. Great stand it's especially, It is especially crazy to introduce the box office achievement category in the year of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Like, you didn't need to do that to recognize the biggest movies of the Incredible. year. Incredible. Uh, maybe Taylor Swift will come. <laughs> How and, do they um, even pick? What do you vote for? What is the I basis no idea. for this? Like, big move, like movies that made money and also that they We're like. Good. But also, like, Mission Impossible is on there. What do you think there, will win? Like, Try and guess. underplayed. Is this win a Barbie category? Yeah. What do you think Taylor Barbie Swift. or Oppenheimer win? Or oh, this is where Taylor, Taylor wins. Swift, I think. I think. Yeah. I think the move is to have okay. Taylor Swift win because Barbie can win comedy and Oppenheimer can win drama. And who accepts the award? If the lowest uh, grossing of those films, whatever, whichever it is, <laughs> you know, won the award. Uh, probably Mission Impossible. Yeah. Either that or lowest John grossing. I mean, are we doing domestic or international? Well, it is an international <laughs> voting base, so who cares? Um, I am excited for the Golden Globes. I f- I'm glad I'll that they're back. They'll be on I, CBS. It's I have one positive thought before we wrap up, which is there's been a lot of conversation and some action in um, making acting categories gender neutral. I think Indie Spirits. Boy, are did we starting this? up a whole new, uh, no, whole my, new conversation? Here's, no, here's my only thought looking at the Golden Globes this year, where it's like, to your point, Katie, it's, it is good that like a lot of different actors get nominated because of that comedy category what's standing in the way isn't this the avenue out of gendered acting categories and having more genre acting categories where you can mix you know gendered performers or or take that out of the equation and still have what people are worried about which is fewer acting winners like maybe the golden globes is correct to get timmy in the mix with wonka like that's and jennifer lawrence like that's cool 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly works for the Golden Globes. You can imagine, you know, the Golden Globes puts all of their supporting categories together. So drama and comedy together. So maybe they get rid of gender distinctions, but then they add supporting categories because nobody wants to have fewer actors accepting awards at their ceremony because that's what people watch for. Um, The Critics' Choice Awards could very well follow suit in that. I mean, the Indie Spirits have done it, the Gotham's. The Grammys got rid of gender distinctions, which is really interesting. Um, I'm not sure the Oscars will ever do it, but I, I think that's a different conversation to have. Probably. It's not what I watch for. You know what I watch for is Joe Hisaishi winning a golden <laughs> fucking globe for Best one of the greatest scores of the, of the 21st century. Eat a dick, <laughs> Ludwig Gorenson, you fucking genius. Get <laughs> I the fuck out of here. Who's the other guy? Jack Black getting beaten by Dua Lipa or... Uh, Mark Ronson in the best original song Golden Globes category. Who's the other guy who just like fucking crushed it with the score this year? It was really good, but he can fuck off right to hell as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, Mika Levy of the Zone of Interest. Poor thing. Uh, score. These inc- things, they're so good. An, but uh, The Zone of Interest score getting a nomination. I mean, is the, the sound, any element of the sound in the Zone of Interest is it's, worthy it's of like the grades, but unpleasant, it is a, unsettling it is a score testament of the year. To the, instant classic we will be listening to this on spotify playlist our great grandchildren will be listening to this and they're fucking like biochips that are put into their spines at birth uh is a testament to, to the work that joe hishayashi did here on what might be miyazaki's last film after a career of collaborating with him that all of those other winners would be fucking embarrassing they would have to fucking ving rames it if they won ludwig has got to get up there and just you know, bring Joe up there and just be like, my man, it's all for you. Like Jack Lemon style. You know what I mean? <laughs> Remember that? Anyone? We got you. Yeah. Thank you. Do your best, Katie, Emma Stone. I in, heard uh, that you were really offended by poor things and don't believe that sex should be depicted on screen. Is that true? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, honestly, like we were talking about the the Gen Z prudes uh, in May, December, and I'm very intrigued to see uh, what happens. With Hold on. We were talking about the, the Gen Z prudes. Let's not let's not use a broad description here. What? what, what come on. We were talking about people reacting to May December uh, in a way that I mean, who knows how old a, they are. Made it, that's true. May December has a <laughs> one sex scene in it. They could be nineteen. They could be twenty. They could be twenty-two. Generation oh, Alpha proves. <laughs> uh, May December has one sex scene in it that is very not explicit. Poor Things has so many sex scenes in it. Sex scene on sex scene. But I don't know is going to be the main thing that people wind up talking about from this movie Um, because it's a Yorgos Lanthimos joint and uses fisheye lenses and insane production design and a uh, very wild score by a guy with a really improbable name. I'm trying to look it up. He got a Golden Globe message. Good vamping. Jerskin Fendrix. Like what a name. Um, He's my favorite F-Zero pilot. That rhymes with Jimi Hendrix. It is a movie that kind of gave me the same feeling as Born in the Hair and at parts where I was like, I don't know what we're going for here. I don't know what scene is going to lead into the next. Uh, But then it emerges as a pretty straightforward story as like a coming of age movie mixed with Frankenstein 
where you've got Emma Stone is this woman who has been picked up by a mad scientist. She uh, threw herself off of a bridge uh, as a pregnant woman, and uh, he picked up her body and replaced her brain with the baby's brain. Do you think he's so a mad scientist? He's pretty reasonable and and science focused. He I mean, angry. he does he take made... a baby uh, brain he... and put it in a, a grown woman, his mother, creating a mother child. But and has made some uh, some weird animal hybrids that I'm not I so would... sure that like the medical institution mad. would be a fan of. I mean, to Patch's point, if if these things worked. Like if if that sort of like chimera like experiment worked, they would just be scientists. Like if 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 we could create new life forms by stitching a dog's head onto a chicken's body, this would be a science. It wouldn't be mad scientists. Uh, so uh, I do yeah, think that we normalize stitching duck heads on dogs. Can we normalize that, please? Uh, yeah, please. Uh, no, do whatever you need to cope. Stitch dog head on a duck if you need to. Um, so anyway, so she grows up in this house with this uh, very affectionate, science, affectionate scientist father and then goes out in the world mostly because she falls in love with uh, a, a excellent fuckboy Mark Ruffalo uh, who wants to have because <laughs> she uh, hits puberty like I don't know. I don't think she's aging rapidly. I can't remember how mm. that happens. Honestly, Although, I think she is. She because, does like, she has a baby seem brain. to Can have a Jack level <laughs> advance. Can we qualify yeah, you calling Mark Ruffalo excellent? Because I think our listeners deserve to know that we're talking like Ryan Gosling in Barbie levels of excellence here. Oh, this is I not... mean, he he is a Ken in so many definitions of the word. I mean, Barbie and poor <laughs> things are incredibly interesting to sit side by side with each other. Um, there are a lot of similarities and not just like a surface level. Like it's about a, like a woman a, a finding her agency. Um, and Mark Ruffalo is definitely one of them. Uh, and so she ventures out in the world. She winds up in Lisbon uh, in this like, uh, I mean, production design. In this movie is unbelievable. Like the worlds that they create. Um, and then kind of just like, wanders around and finds herself and the story is like it's i don't want to call it pat being like like a you go girl story about like a woman doing it for herself but in a lot of ways it kind of is like it's about her having like liberation and agency you were meryl like, streep not, in that oscar meme where she's clapping yeah, I'm and Jennifer pointing Lopez at stage clapping except um, in this case <laughs> she's just getting rammed by different men and just loving every second sure of it is. and women i should say it's about like you know what happens if you have a woman who is in you know emma stone's like conventionally attractive body but who has none of the uh, cultural sense of shame or uh hang-ups that people do and that also lives in this wild ass world of like dog-headed ducks um and <laughs> the story spins out from there it's a blast and it it has surprised me the extent to which it's been embraced despite all of its weirdness and i think that a lot of that is because of the story that's like pretty easy to wrap your head around like if you can get used to the style and the sense that you're in a world that does not really exist. Um, it's a, really easy to go along for that ride. I mean, she's also just so incredible. She is I, incredible. The, the, the I think we have to talk about performance it. performance in this yeah. movie. It's like Keaton-esque or Chaplin-esque. It's one of you pick a guy, uh, you know, and, and it fits. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, she, she is so funny. She and Ruffalo both. And I think that, you know, I don't want to be too cynical about what audiences can and cannot take. But I do think that just the sheer hilarity of this movie is enough to break down a lot of people's defenses, get them on side. I mean, I think we kind of tease this, but in the beginning of the film and maybe not quite for the like first third, but close, she's a child. She is playing what I recognize to be like a two-year-old and a treacherous one who is throwing things and screaming at you and not understanding 
anything in the world. We were looking up after the movie, my wife and I, that I guess Emma Stone had a child, maybe like a one-year-old around this time. Seems to be... Uh, a lot of lived-in experience I was, here. I was thinking about that, too. A, like, a she knows too. what it's like to try to feed a toddler. But, man, <laughs> she's really going for it physically. Not since Martin Short in Clifford have we seen such um, adult-perfected child acting. They put and that quote on the poster, right? They want to compare it to Clifford as much as possible. And she, and <laughs> yeah, she Americans see the word Clifford and it's just dollar signs. You know, they just take my money. <laughs> Uh, and, and yeah, to your point, she is rapidly aging. So we're seeing just a lot of the developmental stages of a child. And that is its own, I don't know, uh, performance experiment that this room, this movie accommodates. There's room for that. And, and then she goes off on her highly sexual tour, which I guess in clashing with the child stuff is, is very disturbing, which maybe the movie doesn't kind of slow down to truly give you the moments where you're like are you getting married to a 10 year old right now or what's really going really? on i mean the fact that she is a baby at one second and maybe like 15 minutes mm. she's getting i would also uh, say there are moral implications upon. to uh taking a recently <laughs> dead woman and uh cutting out her brain and uh, is he putting even her mad? Is he, brain is he mad at all? Okay. Said Matt so, I, I, I'm not. I'm frowning upon his decision while still saying he's sensible, not mad. But, but I think that you know, science is, is the, not mad. The, the moral context of this film, I think, you know, to Katie's point, uh, by the time you get to Emma Stone uh, of an uncertain mental age being taken advantage of, which you know she is by Mark Ruffalo's caddish. Uh, you know, gentleman who comes in and steals her away in the night. I or think it's like kind every... of attempting to take advantage of her. Yeah, like, I you think know, it's, I mean, it's, and she the is... power dynamics are interesting. Right. And of course, you know, hilariously what happens, and this is not much of a spoiler, is uh, he falls deeply in love with her and she could not <laughs> care less. And uh, it's very, very funny. But, but yeah, by the time they're off in Lisbon, like fucking all day, uh, we are in a different moral universe than the one that we recognize the uh, well, no, like, she's clearly hitting puberty like in again it's adult body like i don't know like i th think the fact, the fact that she's a baby and then suddenly is like interested in sexuality like i don't know it, she's it, got that, i mean it would have been so you're saying me. it would have been really helpful if willem dafoe's character turned to the camera whose, whose name is godwin but she refers to him as god uh yes, turned to does. the camera and just said you know she has the jack disease you're like that would help <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> okay. that would have cleared things up I mean, obviously she's aging, um, I, but every so often the movie's reminding you that she's still developmentally young and that sexuality is going to emerge and men are taking advantage of her. I mean, one scene that really struck me, I'm trying to remember exactly the phrase here, that she knows a word that Mark Ruffalo's character is startled by that she knows, but she also, up to this point, didn't know what a banana was. Um and and he's just like reckoning with the fact that she knows absolutely nothing about the world yet uh, has lived with a scientist so she can like fool him with her intellect. Um, and the movie does keep moving back to like, this is a growing woman. She's figuring herself out. Men are taking advantage of her sexually um, while her sexuality is awakening, which is completely reasonable as she tells men over and over and over again. Uh, and, and maybe that for me is what the movie ultimately is about, that she is allowed to blossom even while men are clearly stomping her out and, and taking advantage. And it's not something you see in, in movies a lot, mostly because we don't want to put younger actors in that kind of position, probably, or there's not a lot of stories that would 
be comfortable to the audience. And here it's a laugh riot. It's, it's highly amusing. Yeah. I mean, I think I've seen uh, legitimate com- complaints or criticisms that the movie's cards are on the table from the beginning and that its ideas while developed hilariously are not uh, fleshed out. Uh, you know, there's not new, new oh, dimensions. plenty of flesh, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's not, the, it's not uh, that complicated, right? Like, it's, right, not, it's not exploring anything and I think, crazy. I think that's a valid criticism, but I also think that we can sometimes underrate the sheer pleasure of watching a mm-hmm. movie that knows exactly what it is, um, that gives you interesting food for thought and just sort yep. of lets you chew on it as the flavors sort of, you know, s- steep in your mouth and then and, and become... Uh, more intense, and you can slosh them around uh, and hey, try them this on. This is getting gross. Tips. We can't do this. Anyway, nope. Um, sorry, the people with like uh, you are a uh, mad misophilia. film critic. <laughs> um, but is that worse than the sound of someone eating on mic? Is just describing <laughs> which you would never do going around somebody's mouth. Uh, no, uh, but the uh, not no not that we're now being sponsored by the Brian from <laughs> on our five dollar a month Patreon, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it. There's just so many things to see and so many fun situations for her to be in, and the dynamic between uh, Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo's characters is just so re- reliably and rewardingly amusing that it didn't really bother me. Uh, there's a critic, uh, Beatrice Loyosa, who is writing. You know, definitely this this particular insult connected, where she's talking about how Christopher Abbott's character who emerges in the end is sort of like the final boss of misogyny. Uh, and I think that's on, that's on the money, um, but even so did not really bother me um, in. Well, because he's also movie, like scary and funny and like really entertaining. Yeah, when I, he mean, shows up. I, I do think the, you know, the movie is top heavy in a way, but I also just think that I was uh, I was happy to watch Bella and all of her various misadventures. And I think the coterie of, you know, misogynistic freaks who she gathers around her and. You know the supporting like the people who support her as well, from Godwin to Catherine Hunter. Catherine um, Hunter, you're playing the madam at the brothel in Paris where she works. I mean, these are all. I mean, the whole brothel sequence is so fantastic, um, and like very playful and innocent uh, in a way that sort of subverts the expectations of a sequence in a place like that. I don't know. I I, I was you know, and there's just so much to see and look at. I was going to say it's so and, lavish. Like yeah. okay, the movie it probably overstays its welcome a little bit, but when you get to the Christopher Abbott stuff at the very end, they're in the just most ornate. Like look at this chandelier. Look at these crazy chairs. Where are they? Where? How yeah. could they have filmed this for whatever the budget was that allowed them to tell this story in yeah. these locations? <laughs> like I I cannot put together the 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 budget sheet and the ambition on uh sexual ambition on very, this point here it's know, like so i don't know how they crunch the numbers very much so the ornate. best movie that terry gilliam never made right or like jean-pierre Janoux or tim burton or like there's a lot of tim, yeah, reference points here if, for the style but un, it's unmatched in the way like i kept looking at the sky in this movie and the, and the swirling clouds hmm. and all the all the victorian era set dressing and something he's doing with the camera am i crazy or like he is able to kind of swirl the backgrounds with fisheye lens while keeping the actors visually intact like there's just so much layering going on in the movie to give it this diorama feel i guess maybe like a storybook feel to to the this myth um i was just so taken by the visuals and i, I will admit i watched this at home uh, and still was just like lights off enraptured by everything on display here. And it's kind of a step up for 
Lathabos. You know, did you watch it with both Lathabos. your five-year-old daughter and your <laughs> Yeah, she loved it. I'm like, just your son. if you liked Wish, you should watch this movie. It has, <laughs> it's a princess yeah. story. Come true. Wish has come true. <laughs> the moral of the story, I think, uh, is that if you, you know, if you find a dead person, you should immediately uh, replace their decaying brain with the first baby's mm. brain you can find. Yeah, it just it works out pretty well for everyone. A very Dave, simple surgery saw, for the look wait, of it. You just Dave saw poor things. Out. Didn't Dave see poor things? <laughs> yes, Dave saw I did. poor I saw things. Poor He's things. jumping yes, in here. We talk about poor off. things. No, no. I mean, I've been really enjoying the conversation about poor things. Overall, I I took like maybe two notes, and the first note that I took in the theater was. What if Tim Burton thought about sex? So I like that uh, <laughs> sort of idea of where we placed uh, this movie because it definitely has that feel. Yeah, Emma Stone's great. Um, the thing that sort of uh, kept me engaged with the movie to the point that I didn't mind that it was just saying it was going to do something and then went about doing it was I kept waiting for it to take a turn where things would start going uh, bad for poor Bella. Mm hmm. So there were a lot of the decisions held a little bit more weight where I'm just like, eventually she's going to run across a douchebag that is going to challenge her in a way that she's not prepared for. Luckily, the movie saves that until she is mentally prepared for it. But like I, I was side eyeing uh, Duncan Winterburn uh, as hard as I could until I realized uh, sort of what a, a doofus he was ultimately and just putting on the shell of a cad while ultimately being a, a empty person but it's like halfway through this movie where you see some dead babies and she's really uh traumatized by it that i'm like oh no are we turning a huge corner here and luckily we're not as you guys mentioned we go uh from there to the brothel sequence which is great finally we have men with names like Crab Man, Hooks for Hands Guy, and Leg Humping Guy. Is that what they're as, credited as? As generic people credited uh, in a movie. So, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It really, by the nature of knowing what it is and sort of sticking to that plot, I think it allows it to, the, the themes to go slightly deeper, uh, if you think about them. Not uh boy the hair and deep necessarily in terms of thinking about them but i do think uh like the, the second thing i wrote down was towards the end of the movie which was just adult barbie yeah. like it, it's an adult barbie yep and um it's gonna be interesting to see when these two movies are talked about outside of the same year uh but poor things um is just pushing everything that barbie had beyond what I was already impressed with with Barbie uh, from costumes and set design and how it shot uh, deep into uh, Lathamos vision. Uh, that is it's pretty sweet. I, I really like Poor Things. It's going to be on my top 10 for sure. I feel like feels, there's a little... Oh, so go, Katie. It feels similar to how I felt about people who criticize Barbie where like America Ferreira has her big monologue and it gets to the end and she kind of doesn't have a decision about it. And it's like, is that all you can do? It's like... Yeah, like that's okay. It's okay to kind of address <laughs> these things and put them in a story that gives you an opportunity to think about them while entertaining you. Mm. Like neither of these movies is interested in solving any of the problems it's presenting. Uh, it's just like taking a refracted in, uh, approach to that world. Nothing in Poor Things is remotely as eye-rolling and <laughs> clumsy as America Ferrera's monologue in Barbie. Uh, I if mean, I sure. as a man can dare to say such a thing. Uh, but I think but, that looking, I think that like you can go into them with kind of bad faith attempts to look for things that aren't there and don't need to be there. You're also speaking to two different 
audiences. I have to imagine Barbie is yes. skewing a little younger and, and reaching a broader audience. Do not you take your kids poor things, to poor things. Just uh, don't do it. <laughs> poor things should not be anybody's first feminism. Um, <laughs> I don't think that, as David was alluding to, I don't think the, or as David and Katie were alluding to, I don't think the solution is in poor things, uh, which is uh, put a baby brain in an adult uh, female body. Look, you don't know but, until you try. I, I guess that's true. I, I appreciated it for almost, I, maybe I shouldn't say like adult Barbie. I should say uh, the sequel that the last line in Barbie made me suddenly wonder about, <laughs> uh, which Barbie... Mm managed to avoid its entire runtime, which is, what about the sex thing? And Poor Things uh, uses that as a place to start. Barbie 2 uh, is just going to be a hard NC-17. <laughs> <That's> bar- <laughs> Barbie, Barbie finally. Things. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's going to have a very different relationship to toys in the sequel. Uh, no, this boy. is... <laughs> I mean, it's very, fu- it's just very funny to me that, that, that at the end of the movie we realize that, you know, we're reminded that she has not had a vagina the entire time. Uh, and I think David's making a valid point that this does feel, in that sense, like uh, the sequel of a woman who discovers pick that she it, does. Picking up the ball where they dropped it. Exactly. Uh, poor things. He's got another one with Emma Stone. She's in it, right? His new, his new, new one next year. The one that used to be called And and now has yeah, another title. Yeah, it's called Kinds of Kindness. Which is uh, weird, but better than And probably. Wait, Patches, you were going to say something than before. Kind were you? of Kindness, which was its originally reported new title before it was updated to the. More accurate uh, and more sensical kinds of kindness. Yeah. Something very important, which was drawing a line between this and Miyazaki. Uh, what's that? What's what's God burping in this movie? I found that to be a very Miyazaki touch that mm. he's always eating dinner and, and burping perfect spheres that pop. Oh, um, yeah. I forgot about what's, that. What's, yeah. that, what's his, he doing his, there? His digestive juices. <laughs> Went wrong. I thought we weren't talking about such things anymore. <laughs> uh, I was given so a yellow he's card made for a, that earlier. Yeah, he's made a digestive system and he, he burps orbs. Uh, he certainly yeah, like you do. Of course. Great in case, touch. In case, in case the set design wasn't enough for you, is probably one of the first indications this movie is doing something different. Yeah. Yeah, Burping I can't wait orbs. to see this movie again. Yeah, it's also in theaters. What a time to be in theaters. Yeah, good movies out there. It's the it's fun for us to figure out what to talk about every week because uh, we don't have to talk about. Let me. What have we talked about recently that we don't have to? And do to anymore? think we almost talked about the truly uh, risible Netflix movie <laughs> "Leave the World Behind." The curse <laughs> of Sam Esmail continues. Uh, man. We talked about a haunting <sighs> in Venice on this podcast not so long ago. We did. And yeah, I started I from the that. bottom. Now we're here. It's crazy when Rami Malek isn't the worst thing you've given the world. You know? Oh my god, that's the funky shit! That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. We are figuring out our end of the year plans. We're probably going to take off the week of Christmas, just as a heads up to everybody who has invested. And we'll have our top 10 episodes in January, as I think we've established as a relatively recent tradition. But we're still around. We're still talking about a lot of the best year in, year in movies. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, executive editor at Polygon. I'm on Blue Sky and Letterboxd at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com. You can listen to old episodes. David got me wondering. I'm pretty sure we did a Wind Rises 
podcast ages ago. Yeah, I am now that would have been sure. in the zone. Uh, saw it at New York Film Festival, probably with a bunch of you here. Uh, go listen to that. Be very curious how we felt about it. I think we loved it. But uh, yeah, fightingintheworm.com. Lots of old episodes. I'm David Ehrlich. Uh, I'm the film critic over at IndieWire. You can find me on Twitter. Also known as X. Uh, uh, you can find me on Letterboxd. So whatever. My name is David Ehrlich on X. You can find me on Letterboxd. You can find me on Blue Sky. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on IndieWire where I have written about the... Uh, I was going to say the Iron Giant. I don't know. By the time we record these things, I'm still cracked out. Um, but I probably have written about the Iron Giant at some point. More relevantly, I've written about the Boy and the Heron. Uh, I've also uh, written a very long story about the making of the dub of that film, should you find it interesting. Um, you can find all of us together on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. Or even not a Just write like a letter, a letter to the editor. I mean, you can just write to us about what's happening in your life. Doesn't necessarily have to be something as navel gazing and narcissistic as a review. You can just tell us what's going on with you. You know, as long as it's got a star rating attached to it, good enough for us. Dave, they can also email or, us, right? Wow, wow. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We were doing it. We were doing it. Transitions. You made it happen. This is this is the real reason we don't have transitions. Mm. Is because we would just fuck it up all the time. <laughs> people would be like, "Man, they're the worst at transitions." Uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. You could find me on Twitter and Blue Skies, DA7E, on Instagram and threads as GrumpyDA7E. And uh, yes, please send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. And I am Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on Little Gold Men, the podcast where we talked about the Golden Globes in much more detail. We're recording this before the Critics' Choice Awards nominations are out, which um, Patches and I voted in. And uh, by the time you hear Little Gold Men, they'll be out. So extra bonus. Um, I am on Twitter and Blue Sky at Katie Rich on Letterboxd at Katie Rich, where I'm still watching Scorsese movies for a screen draft I'm recording in January. So if you want to um, watch me experience Kundun for the first time, uh, that's the place where I'll be doing that. You can find us on Twitter and Blue Sky at FITWR, where you can um, tell us what your audience and the boy in the heron laughed at the most. Or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Wonka, which I'm told is wide in theaters this weekend, <laughs> fix your website, IMDb, box office mojo says limited. Uh, in honor of Wonka, a character that dreams of manufacturing chocolate, what type of retail store would you open? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Bum, 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 bum. No, I'm done. I'm done. We're done.